0: Over these last few months, as we've been going through Matthew and Romans, there have been quite a few weeks when I've been struck by the parallels that have existed between both of those books. And this week in particular has been uh, one such week when a number of the things that we've been able to consider this morning in Matthew, uh, we find ringing true. As Paul writes to the Romans as well, I find that wonderfully encouraging that as we uh, look at the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find all of those same principles uh, echoed in the ministry of his apostles. Now, we, we shouldn't be surprised by that, should we? But it's wonderfully encouraging when we actually see it on the page of Scripture, those things being reinforced Uh, so that we can can really be certain these are the things which are of God. Uh, The Bible is a most remarkable, wonderful book. Well, Romans 10, as we look at these opening verses of this chapter. How is it that any sinner will turn from their sins to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, for salvation. Well, in chapter 9, of verse 16, Paul tells us, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs. We've examined those things. It is not something which you, by exercising the power of your own intellect or by reasoning within your own conscience, you came to a position all by yourself, where you were sufficiently convinced about the claims of the Gospel. Now, it is true that it might feel like that's what you did, but there was something far more significant going on that actually enabled that to happen within you. And it wasn't the result of any work or any code of conduct to which you'd committed yourself. No, the reason that any sinner turns from their sins to put their trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation is because God has shown you mercy. And not just shown it to you in theory, he's actually brought it to bear upon you. Really. He's shown mercy by choosing you for himself. You are one of those to whom and for whom the promise of salvation was given. God's children of promise, chapter 9, verse 8. It's not because of anything that you've done. It is purely down to that which God has purposed to do. And who he has elected to save. And we've seen those themes covered in the the previous chapter. God will have mercy on whomever he will have mercy. He will have compassion on whomever he will have compassion. He has mercy on whom he wills. And whom he wills, he hardens. The potter has power over the clay authority over the clay he created the clay that from that same lump he will make one vessel for honour and another vessel for dishonour and will the thing formed say to him who formed it why have you made me like this? and Paul's heart is broken for his fellow Jews who've rejected the Saviour. Now, you might suppose that all of this presents itself as the most tragic and hopeless scene in the face of which Paul can do absolutely nothing and that he must simply shrug his shoulders with a reluctant and despairing c'est la vie. You're chosen or you're not chosen. You're elect or you're not elect. You're this vessel or you're that vessel. What can be done? But not at all. Not at all. Listen to him at the opening verse of chapter 10. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved... But Paul, what's the point if it's all being decided? Well, sometimes Paul provides us with written instruction, and other times he instructs us by means of example. And right there in verse 1 is a time when he instructs us by means of example. No, I still pray and pray and pray. So here's the first lesson from verse 1. God's electing grace drives God's elect people to pray. Now, some of the written instruction will follow as we continue through this this chapter. When we get there, we'll examine it in some detail. Suffice it to say for now that God has not only decided who will be saved, God has not only decided. Who are the vessels for honour and who are the vessels for dishonour? But he's also decided how the vessels for honour will be saved. Harks back to one of the things we thought about this morning. God has decided how those vessels will be saved. Which is why all through the Old Testament there are prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ because it's all wrapped up in him. And there is both explicit instruction and teaching about Christ in the Old Testament. And there's also all kinds of illustrations, sometimes referred to as types and shadows. The work of Christ as the priestly mediator and the spotless sacrifice for sin is all seen in Old Testament worship in the tabernacle. It's all pointing to him. God has a way. The nature of Christ's crucifixion and death, they're clearly portrayed in the Old Testament. And in certain places, very starkly so. Read Psalm 22, read Isaiah 53. How can you not be struck about that which Christ would come into the world to do? And those things which would happen to him. God has a way prepared. There is a how to our salvation, not just who. The need for believing faith has already been addressed by Paul with Old Testament examples. The soul that cries out to God for mercy and cleansing and for renewing is exemplified by David in Psalm 51. God has a way by which souls will be saved. Well, I've mentioned a few of the more obvious ones. The Old Testament is filled with them. So that when Jesus came into the world to save his people from his sins, he was and is the culmination and the fruition and the completion and the fulfillment of all that God had foretold and promised. Because God hasn't just elected those who he will save, but he's also established the means by which they will be saved. God has decided how his elect ones will be saved. And so Paul has detailed for us how the atoning death of Christ secures salvation for sinners, propitiation by his blood. God is satisfied with the death of Christ on behalf of sinners. He is the perfect substitute for you in your sins. The imputation to you putting to your account Christ's own righteousness, Christ's substitutionary death for you on the cross, the justification which you now have in him through his blood, that declaration that God makes over the sinner, you now are right with me because of my son. By by Christ's obedience... Sinners are made righteous before God. We are united to Christ in his death, his resurrection, dying with him, living with him. By the power and work of his spirit, the Christian is made alive in Christ. The Christian takes possession of this salvation by faith and in repentance. And you receive the very life of Christ within you by his spirit. Yes, very good, Paul. Some might still struggle. But why bother with this kind of desire and prayer if it's all been decided? Because God has a means by which the sinner is brought to faith through the preaching of the gospel. We talked about that this morning. We're going to see it next week, God willing, from verses 9 to 15. It's through the preaching of the gospel. And none of us, save God, know who his chosen vessels are. None of us know at what point in their life those chosen vessels will be brought to saving faith. Some will be saved as young children. Some will be saved on their deathbed in old age and many others, somewhere between those two things. And God has placed within his apostle this deep, deep burden for the lost, which drives him on, and which keeps him persevering, knowing there are those who will be saved, because they're the Lord's. He knows that in the mysteries of God's will and purpose. It will be because of his own faithful ministry in the gospel and the faithful ministry in the gospel of countless others that those chosen vessels hear of Christ and are brought to faith in Christ. And so he unburdens his heart before them, before the Lord in prayer. And so must we. Because God has this means by which sinners are saved. If you're a Christian this evening, it's those very means which saved you. And we must pray on. God knows about your burdened heart for those who you love who as yet don't know the Lord. Pray on. Some of you bear that particular burden greatly every day. Well, in his great kindness, God has guided Paul to record these things in the scripture. And they're there for for our instruction. They're there particularly for your help and for your encouragement. All is not yet hopeless. Today still is a day of grace. And so what wells up within Paul's heart I must pray and pray and pray and preach. And so must we. God's electing grace drives God's elect people to pray that God would continue to do that which he has purposed to do. And then we learn another really helpful lesson in verses 2 and 3. Paul is thinking particularly about the people of Israel. And he says that zeal on its own is not enough. Zeal on on its own is not enough. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a great zeal for God, but their thinking is wrong. They have a great zeal for God, but they're completely mistaken as to how they might get themselves right with God. And no amount of zeal will make up for the lack of knowledge. No amount of zeal will make up for the fact that they're heading in the wrong direction and trying to do it the wrong way. Zeal on its own is not enough to save you. Zeal on its own is not enough to keep you as a Christian. And Paul knows what he's talking about. He knows all about the zeal of the Jew. For that surely was once his very life. When he writes to the Galatian church in the opening chapter, he says this, You have heard of my former conduct... In Judaism, of course, this is one of the reasons why many believers were quite sceptical about Saul of Tarsus becoming a Christian when they first heard about it. You've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the Church of God beyond measure, tried to destroy it. Well, that's some zeal. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul wasn't just zealous. Paul wasn't just more zealous. He was more exceedingly zealous. Paul often piles superlative upon superlative. There was no one more zealous than me. For any who might not be aware of his background, he acknowledges to the Philippian church that concerning zeal, he persecuted the church, As a murderous Pharisee, Paul wasn't just zealous. He wasn't just more exceedingly zealous than the rest. He was a a more exceedingly zealous murderer of Christians. What was the problem with Paul's zeal in his years as Saul of Tarsus? Well, his zeal was accompanied by a total lack of knowledge of Christ and his gospel. He got 10 out of 10 for zeal. Zeal wasn't the issue. It's that his, his knowledge was a complete blank. A total lack of understanding regarding all of the Old Testament scriptures that he thought he knew and understood but was clueless about in reality but which he now is able to quote as a man converted to Christ and understanding how all of these things fit together. And he's still now a man of great zeal, but now he's a believer. And his zeal now as a believer is based upon his knowledge of Christ and the gospel. And this knowledge that he has is the fuel and the catalyst for his zeal. His zeal flows out now from what he knows about Christ. They have zeal for God but not according to knowledge. All of these wonderful truths which Paul is opening up to us in Romans. Perhaps there are some and more than halfway through the letter uh, you're asking yourself, is all of, all of this doctrine really necessary Well, Paul says, zeal without knowledge will only lead you to destruction. Paul is saying, you you need these truths. And for Paul, you see, it's actually these truths which now drive him on. Now, being zealous, of course, sounds like quite an upbeat thing, doesn't it? Surely it's good to be zealous. Well, yes, it is. But the problem is, without knowledge, being zealous, that can just take you anywhere. Seeking to be zealous might sound like a good thing, and in one sense, of course, it is. But true Christian zeal is the fruit of your knowledge of Christ and the gospel. Zeal must never be seen as an entity in its own right that exists in complete isolation. Vladimir Putin right now is full of zeal, isn't he? There needs to be knowledge that guides and directs and drives the Christian's zeal. The Christian is to have zeal according to knowledge. The Christian is to have zeal that is fueled by the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of the Gospel. And it's that knowledge which inspires and inflames your zeal for the lost. And that's what we're seeing here in the Apostle Paul. It's because of all of these truths that he continues to be a man of prayer for Israel. It's because of what he understands of who God is and how God works that he continues to be a man of prayer in this way. Now, you might be tempted, perhaps, sometimes maybe Christians are tempted to try and manufacture zeal by other means, perhaps by a certain type of activity or by a certain type of experience. But true and lasting Christian zeal proceeds out of an experiential knowledge of Christ and his gospel that's what marks Paul's life out now that's what makes Paul the man that he is because these truths aren't just words on a piece of paper these are the things which are deep within his soul and this is what fires him up this is what keeps him moving forward as a believer This is what keeps him pressing on and holding on as a Christian man and as an apostle and as a preacher of the gospel. Uh, Back in Galatians chapter 1, I mentioned that just before, Paul explains what it was that brought about the change within him. From verse 15 of Galatians 1, But when it pleased God... If it had never pleased God to do in Paul what God did in Paul, he would still be Saul of Tarsus. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles... Christ revealed to him, in him, Christ made known to him, everything changed. And it's this knowledge of this Jesus that's changed everything for Paul. For Saul of Tarsus, along with all of his fellow Jews, they had been seeking a self-righteousness, A self-attained righteousness. Righteousness. How How might we describe righteousness? Well, let's hold up a set of balance scales. On one side of the scales, we will place the holiness and the goodness of God in all of his sinless perfection on it goes down goes the scale so here the holiness and goodness of God in all of his sinless perfection and on the other side we place you or me Are you able to balance the scale so that you and God are equal? No. For the Jew, they recognize that, to begin with, they are very unbalanced against God and so they try and pile into their side all of their good works all of their law-keeping and they like to think that they can cum- accumulate enough on their side of the scale to balance it out against God himself as the standard no it can't be done can't be done One man came into the world whose life was placed on the opposite side of the scale when measured against the holiness and the goodness of God in all of God's sinless perfection. And one man's life was able to balance the scale when measured against God. Of course, that was Jesus. And it's because of his righteousness that you may be justified. We have to abandon ourselves, we have to forget about ourselves, we have to abandon any idea or thought or hope of self-righteousness and We must bow the knee to Christ. We must submit ourselves to Christ. We must give ourselves to Christ. He is the righteousness of God. And you must submit to him. And that's what you need to know. He is who you need to know. That you might be made righteous. I quoted from Philippians earlier on. Paul goes on to say this, the things which were gain to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. I've put them all in the balance scale. They did absolutely nothing, so I've thrown them all out now. I counted all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ, that I might be found in him. Why? Well, not to have my own righteousness, which is from the law. That just didn't work. Could never work in my sin. But that righteousness, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith. So have you submitted yourself to the righteousness of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you seen and confessed to him how utterly worthless you are, how unworthy you are, how how very far away you are from ever hoping to balance that scale yourself? Have you seen in the Lord Jesus Christ the one who's taken the weight and the burden of your sins and nailed them to the cross for you? Have you seen in the Lord Jesus Christ the righteousness that you need in order that you may at last be right with God, that you can be reconciled to him? This is what the Jews have completely missed. Being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness. It can't be done. Where have they gone wrong? They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Which is to abandon yourself and all hope in yourself and to turn to Christ, who is the righteousness of God. Have you done that? And Paul goes on in these next few verses now, just to emphasise the point, And this is our third point this evening, that law-keeping for salvation is ended in and through christ this is this is what transformed paul's life there was none more zealous to try and keep the law for his own salvation and he's had to discard the whole thing christ is the end of the law verse 4 for righteousness to everyone who believes christ is the end of the law. Now, this can be seen in two ways, both of which are true. Firstly, Christ is the end of the law in the sense that he was always the ultimate goal of the law. The law was always pointing to Christ that he would come and be the fulfilment of it. That's what Jesus claims about himself in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. I haven't come to abandon the law. The law's not evil. I've come to fulfil the requirements of the law. You can't. I can. What's more, I've come to do it for you. So Christ is the end of the law in terms of being the fulfilment of it. And Christ is the end in that he brings to a close the sinner's former relationship with the law as Paul has previously taught us in chapters 6 and 7. No longer are we under the burden of having to try to keep the law ourselves in order to be considered righteous in God's eyes. Righteousness is ours through faith in Christ. He lived the life of perfect obedience to God's law, which you and I are simply incapable of doing. So, if you want to be justified by God by keeping the law, then you will have to live your entire life from birth till death, keeping every single point of the law perfectly. That's the implication of verse 5. But who has? Well, actually, Jesus has. Jesus has. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And his righteousness is accounted, imputed to us. So God the Father may now look upon you as a Christian as being as righteous as Jesus is. Because it's Christ's righteousness which has been put to your account now. The righteousness which is required for acceptance with God is ours in Christ. And the righteous life to which the Christian is now committed is a life lived by the power of Christ through his Holy Spirit. Now the law of God still has a place in our lives. It's our guide and it's our instruction as to the way that we should go and how we should live in a way that pleases God. But it's not anymore set before us as a standard to which we must attain if we are to be saved. Christ has dealt with that side of it on your behalf. And so in that way, Christ is the end of the law for us. Who could possibly ascend into heaven in order to obtain what is needed, verse 6? We don't need to do that because Christ himself has come down from heaven for us nor do you need to plumb the lowest depths to obtain it. For Christ himself has risen from the grave in order to accomplish salvation for you. There's some thoughts that Paul is borrowing from Deuteronomy chapter 30. So this this idea of self-righteousness, which the Jewish people are are caught up in, it. it's all so unattainable when you think of it in that way, so far beyond our grasp. How could could any of us ever be right with God? How could any of us ever possess the righteousness required by God in heaven? Well, the wonderful truth of the gospel is that it's very near, verse 8, it's very near because even now if you're not a Christian even now as you're listening there stands before you one who bids you come he's so very near he simply says come to me come as you are come in all of your sin Come in all of your failing, come in all of your frustration, anger, bitterness, whatever it is that is yours. Just come to receive him by faith in believing. It's so very, very near. The word of faith which we preach. Every time the word of God is preached, every time the gospel is preached, The one who is the way is so very, very near to be received by faith. That's the only thing needful, to believe in Christ and to trust in Christ. To confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. To believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. With all that that means. That he has accomplished everything that he came to do. That he is victorious over sin and death forever. Confess Christ. Believe in your heart. You will be saved. It's so very, very Near for you right now? Will you believe? Will you receive Him by faith? All of this will be yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for these great truths. How we thank you too, O Lord, that all of it boils down to the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. The one who knew no sin, made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh Lord, open eyes, soften hearts. Grant the gift of faith that those who are lost might be found, that those who are dead might receive life, and that through faith in him they might be saved. Hear us, we pray, to your glory and praise, and in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.